Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Dear Michael, I was so happy to receive your last letter. As I read it, I could hear your voice, which I have become so familiar with over the past year. Which is strange, since you have no idea what I look like or sound like. So what's important to remember is that this isn't the end. There's going to be a second appeal. Is this just going to go on for years? The longer I'm in here, the more likely it is I'm going to get killed. Welcome back to The Staircase Podcast. I'm your host, Nancy Miller. It's fitting that the name of this fifth episode of The Staircase is called The Beating Heart, because this one had our hearts pounding. As Michael Peterson's life takes a brutal turn, we finally discover the identity of his new female companion, who asks one of the most important questions in the series. What is justice? The answer, it seems, is for whomever comes up with the best story. To talk more about this, I'm here with the writer of this episode, Craig Shilowich, as well as one of the editors of this series, Sophia Subercasso. I'll also be speaking with psychologist and professor Amanda Vickery about her compelling research into why people, women in particular, love true crime. There are a million theories about this, but Vickery has actually dropped some actual science. Her research will surprise you. And lastly, I will be talking with the great French actress Juliette Binoche, who I think we can all agree is part of one of the best surprise reveals since Kaiser Sose. But first, let's check in with Craig and Sophia for a provocative discussion about objectivity and bias in storytelling. Welcome to the Companion Podcast to the Staircase. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Here we are. This is episode five. And it's interesting because we're at this stage in the series where we're seeing the completion of one story and the beginning of another. The trial has ended. Michael's adjusting to prison. The documentary is finished and Jean-Xavier is presenting it to a crowd by the end. And yet we see the beginnings of what will be a really important relationship that we're just realizing is the relationship between the editor, played by Juliette Binoche, and Michael Peterson, um, which is, ta-da, this shocker. This is true. This has really happened. Sophie has fallen in love with Michael almost entirely based on the immersion that she's had with 500-plus hours of documentary footage. And your first thought, you know, 
Craig, as the as the writer, is that's insane. How could that ever happen? What, <laughs> what is your first thought when you're looking at this? And then as you dug deeper into this relationship, I always bought it. Some part of me was like, I, I get that, which maybe says something about me. I never had any trouble understanding that it was it was a hot debate in the writer's room, sort of like who this person is, how 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 it came together, what it meant about her, what it meant about him. Um, I definitely didn't. I was like crossing my fingers. I wasn't going to get this episode. And Antonio kind of <laughs> tricked me a little bit. He was like, what are you thinking? And I was like, oh, 106, definitely. And then the next day he was like, so Craig, we're thinking you'll take five. And I was like, you motherfucker. Um, because it was just a lot, you know, to like have to flesh out this very strange relationship that was like, you know, it felt too weird to believe, but it was true. It was all true. So, and it's where the show kind of pivots out of, you know, what people are familiar with from the documentary. But I, I was actually really <laughs> happy I got it because it was, it was fun and challenging to write, write it. Um, but I'm still mad at Antonio. <laughs> because you're thinking, oh my God, the burden <laughs> of having to reveal, I mean, a few different things in this moment, but reveal and legitimize this relationship? Was that your concern? Yeah, to make it honest, you know, to, mm -hmm. to just as a as an episode of television, but also to how I understood their relationship to have unfolded. Um, and the prison experience and making sure that that was, you know, um, honest and respectful, both to, you know, people that have gone through that experience generally, but also, you know, Michael and these these guys he knew in, in prison and the family and, and, and all of that. So, yeah, it felt like a lot of responsibility to kind of, you know, have this pivot episode um, where the show kind of changes fundamentally, um, at least for a time. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think it's a cool episode for the, all those reasons. Sophia, um, as someone who has worked as an editor in a documentary film, how did it strike you with the discovery that Sophie has a relationship with the subject in the documentary? Um, I feel similarly to, to Craig. I just feel like, especially with documentary, you get so, there's so much footage and, the, and you just sit with these people and you're seeing them at the most like intimate, all the like off moments and like all the, like you have like an in, incredible like insight into someone and also just like what the camera captures when they're let their, their guard down. So I, I find it very believable that that she would fall in love with him. Yeah, you know, and I think like sort of one of the maybe greatest injustices of how we understand at least uh, like American filmmaking and I suppose French filmmaking too, is the idea of the auteur, the director, the writer, and those who are shaping the story on the production end. And I don't know if we have enough credit to the editors. Sophia, can you help us understand, and maybe Craig, you can too, because you have perspective, of how important an editor is to particularly a documentary project in helping shape the narrative of what happens? Uh it's not scripted and there's not like, you don't know what you're shooting or you don't know what's going to actually make it into, into the final movie. So in particular in documentaries, you really do write the movie in the edit room. You really do shape it and construct it in post. And I think what I've, I find very exciting about this episode in particular is that I can't think of a movie or TV or film where like they, they like, 
explain the process of editing and filmmaking too, which is like I like those scenes of the French uh, filmmakers and and Sophie like fight, fighting over like what stays in and what stays out. It's just like it's it's such a like cool thing to see something that that uh, it's like very dramatically satisfying, but also really gives you an insight into like the filmmaker process. You know, the editor's the the most important crew member on the movie, in my opinion. I'm also married to an editor, which is maybe why also Antonio was interested in having me write this episode. <laughs> the editor, you know, sets the tone for the for the post production, and you know, you're you're resculpting the movie in the edit, and it can go any number of ways, documentary and narrative. Like you know, all the choices you make that add up to like the show. All right, Craig, talk to me about a scene in this episode in which none of the people making this French documentary, not the director, the producer, or the editor, can seem to agree on how best to tell the story. You know, everyone's got their own agenda and they don't always align, but everyone's trying to make the best thing possible. And it can create some, you know, some heated uh, dialogue. Um, And, you know, they all kind of are just in over their heads with this thing, which is so, you know, massive and complicated. And the people are all so strange and they're all just trying to tell the best version of the story. And what also it, it captures, too, though, is this dilemma you know, Denis, who's the producer, can't understand why are we so obsessed with understanding Michael? He seems to have this perspective that's like coming down on he's guilty. Let's just look at these facts. And then you have Jean Xavier, who has a a character study. And then there's Sophie, who's saying, I want to find balance. And these conversations are so intriguing because this is what we're trying to do. Where we understand the show She's totally right. And what I like about the episode and all the arguments in it is like everybody's right and everybody's wrong at the same time. And, you know, she's she's advocating for balance, but she's, you know, as as we'll see in the show, she clearly has growing some sort of romantic interest in him, whether she knows it or not yet. And and Sophia edited a narrative project that Antonio and I made called Christine. And I vividly remember an argument Antonio and I were having about the end of the movie. And Antonio and I were kind of getting in this neurotic back and forth about the pros and cons of it. And I just remember Sophia sort of like slamming her fist down and being like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear anyone tell me what the point of the movie is. We're not putting it in. I just don't think it's a good idea. I'm sorry. And like that was the final word. And we just kind of like we were like, OK, yeah, <laughs> I do not remember that at all. I mean, I'm used to also working in projects where I feel very like emotionally involved. I work with my friends. I work with my husband. Like it really feels like something that you care about deeply. And I guess this is our little behind the scenes fun fact moment that you are married to Antonio Campos, who is the creator, showrunner and executive of the series, and that you two have collaborated on several projects in the past. Craig, as we are working on this podcast and learning more about Sophie, the actual person, we're just learning that she was an incredible force in the documentary on Michael's life, and as we'll see in future episodes, on the next subsequent years of what happens with Michael's story. I'd love to just get your take on Sophie. She felt like the glue of the project to me, and she she kind of kept it going, both in, through her you know personal relationship with Michael, but there's all of this footage in the interstitial years in between episodes eight and nine of, of the documentary um, that 
you know, she's still there, like grinding it out, making footage, exploring different theories about what could have happened. She's flying back and forth from, you know, Paris to to Durham. She was like a force of nature. She was she's just such a singular, passionate, you know, character in all of this. She's she's as big a personality as any of these people, um, bigger in some ways. Um, and she she's the one sort of like holding the whole, you know, saga together. You know, here in the States, I didn't know that there was this relationship between Michael and Sophie. This was completely new information for me while watching this series. And I my reaction was judgment um, initially, I think, because I'm looking at documentary filmmaking as a form of journalism. And my God, this changes everything. They had somebody planted inside who was looking out for Michael's case. And this is a biased documentary. And maybe this is for Sophia. What are your thoughts about this idea of sort of unbiased documentary filmmaking? I mean, I think it's impossible, right? Like it just, it's not, it's unless you had like some computer do it, you know, like it's, it's just impossible to remove yourself from it. And it's in the minute like you place the camera, you're making a choice. There's just like endless decisions that I think you make unconsciously unconsciously uh, that that shape or that like put your point of view or your perspective in it you try to be as objective as possible and to like remove all kind of like baggage that you might have and try to like to to be the most truthful to your subject and to the footage, but it's still, it's such as it's full of subjective decisions. There's, it's just impossible not to. She didn't start from a place of bias. She didn't yeah. know this guy. It was unfolding in real time. So the, the bias sort of develops as it goes on. And I think she was just, it was, it was clear to Sophie that in the math of it, you know, there was more injustice than justice served there. And that, that that felt clear enough to her to incorporate into the story. And why wouldn't you? If that was so clear to you, you know, why wouldn't you build out your story that way? Which is a really good point. She never says, I'm going to prove Michael's innocence. What she says is, and this is what the filmmakers kind of echo over and over again, we didn't set out to prove whether or not someone was a, a murderer necessarily. We were there to follow the American judicial system. And we did it through this one case. And that's what this story is about. And so she says to Michael, yeah. I think you deserve a, we're going to see if you can get you a new trial because that trial was bullshit, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I feel like that's an important distinction. And I think you achieved that successfully in this dramatized version. Juliette just did such a good job at like creating this real three-dimensional person. But it, it also makes you like feel so empathetic and you understand her and you're not judging her she's 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 made such a massive emotional investment in this like she not just in the project but in you know understanding this guy who is kind of incomprehensible um so it's a you know it, it becomes a personal project for her um to to understand him and, and what happened and she kind of happens to fall in love with him along the way sophia did juliet binoche ever connect with you trying to understand what an editor does? And if so, what was that like? So when we were, because I was with Antonio living in Atlanta when we were shooting this last year, 
she was very sweet and just started coming over to the house just to hang out and like I was like completely starstruck it's like Juliet Binoche is in like our <laughs> living room and she's but she's so <laughs> sweet and down to earth and real that it was like I feel like we 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 got along really well and then she was like oh I want to just like come and like sit and see you like just like watch you work and I'm like oh Sure, sure. <laughs> Wait, so she wanted to sit down next to you while you were editing? Yeah, and I was like, it's kind of boring, but you're welcome to it. And and she was like very diligent, like taking notes. I was like, what's what are you doing there? We're like, and I mean, I'm trying to act like she's not there, but of course I couldn't. But uh, yeah, she was just like very gracious, and and it was fun. It was fun to to have her in the room. That literally does not sound like any fun, by the way, like having Juliette Binoche sit next to me while I'm editing something. Completely. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it definitely was a little nerve-wracking in a good way. <laughs> like, oh, Juliette Binoche is coming over in like 10 minutes to like watch me work. And I was like, oh, my God. We talked about this in the Antonio and I were, because we're both married to editors, we like, we really need to make editing seem as exciting as and important as we we know it is and that was we were both really invested in in that in this episode and i hope that we kind of got there um but then you know that being alone and in your head and working the software is like one part of it the rest of it is you know these very sometimes intense emotional arguments you have to have about protecting the work or defending the work or you know and and that's you see that in the episode too that that's a large part of the editing process is like sculpting the story and making sure that you know you're both open to criticism but you know not compromising the work Sophia when you became aware that this was not going to be just a retelling of the documentary what were some of the things that you were either excited for or terrified of or thinking about knowing you had pretty close access to the director and the creator of the show. Um, what were you thinking about knowing you're going to be working all these timelines and making sure that it made fucking sense? I met Antonio almost 10 years ago. And I think on like our very first date where he was talking about the staircase. So are you serious? I, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I've been very involved with the process in such like an intimate way that I understood the challenges. You know, I met, I started working with Antonio. I met Tonio like about 10 years ago too. Um, anyway, I had approached him to direct this movie, Christine, that I wrote and that Sophia went on to edit. And that was, you know, 2012, 2013. And he was like, I love it. I want to do it. I have to make it work with the Staircase movie I'm about to make. And that was, you know, a full 10 years ago. And just having watched Antonio sort of work on it for so long and having had to go through all these different iterations and it's it's a little easier to um, yeah completely. make it all make sense when you've lived it a little bit. And then no one's lived it more than in Antonio. Um, and, it's, and it's also a reminder that great work can take a long time. I think those of anyone who pursues something creative or a passion project and you think, oh, I'm just going to write a book. It's going to take a year. Or I, there's this case about a woman who was found at the bottom of the staircase. It'll take, I just need to get a little bit of money and figure it out, sell it. And it, things change and it can take 10 years minimum for some of these projects to come together, which I guess I find heartening for anyone out there who's trying to pull a passion project together and 
it can take a really long time to get great work out there. Yeah. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Um, Craig, you had written, you know, you write this great scene where these, the director and the producer and the editor are arguing. It's actually a very healthy conflict. It's a great conversation that great work like this should have. Is any of that echoed in the writing room? That definitely happened in the writer's room a handful of times, but um, r- rarely. It was a pretty productive writer's room, but it was like a tense writer's room. It was like, you know, a half a dozen very smart, very opinionated people that like the arguments you see in the show. Like, we all just wanted it to be right. We all just wanted it to be good. Um, and we're all coming from different angles and different life experiences. And um, so sometimes, yeah, it would, it would become you know, heated. You had this trove of material to go through and you would still potentially come up with a different opinion of what happened, you know? Totally. And then I remember every like couple weeks we would check in and would be we would be like, so who thinks Michael did it? You know, and it and it flip flopped like every month. Like everyone just did a complete 180. And I personally, you know, started the room thinking one thing, quarter of the way through, thought another thing, went back to the other thing. It's you know it's like a an optical illusion this 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 case in that documentary series and um, any can, any which way you look at it you know if the light's a little different you're gonna think something completely different um, and that that was the shape that those conversations and arguments took in in the writers room. Do you feel like you've arrived at a decision? And again, I understand that's not what the show is about, but it's sure fun to ask people. It's kind of what the show is about. It's what the that's it's at the center of the show, and I don't I don't. No, <laughs> I have no idea. I, I went back and forth 50 times. I really, you know, there were days where I was 100% sure that he murdered his wife. And there are days where I'm 100% sure that there's no way that he could have done it. So I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> it's an incredible episode. I'm excited for viewers to enjoy and see what happens next. So great work. And thank you again for being guests on Episode 5, Sophia and Craig. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. For more than a decade, psychologist Amanda Vickery has studied people's fascination with true crime. And because she's also a fan of the genre, since she was a kid, she too shares the obsession. So, no judgment from Dr. Vickery. Welcome, Dr. Amanda Vickery, to the companion podcast to The Staircase. I am so pleased to speak with you. And I'm excited to speak with you as well. In this episode, there is 
this one moment where one character says to the other character, it's like two filmmakers talking, the director and the producer, one of them says, what is this obsession with understanding Michael? And who they're referring to, of course, is Michael Peterson. And this debate of this obsession of understanding what happened. Did he do it? Didn't he do it? Why? What? 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 And it got me thinking about our collective obsession with true crime. And this is a really big part of your work. So give us a bit of background about what you do. And then let's just dig into that topic because there's lots of it. <laughs> Sure. Well, I'm a psychology professor um, at Illinois Wesleyan University in central Illinois. And I re uh, your question, your comment struck a chord with me because I have been obsessed with true crime and killers and everything <laughs> else since I was a fairly young child. My totally inappropriate mother gave me a true crime book to read when I was 12 called The Woodchipper Murder. <laughs> And I was hooked ever since. And so when I went to graduate school for psychology, I originally was studying romantic relationships. And about partway through, I confessed to my advisor that secretly I have this crime obsession. And he said, you know, my wife watches all these crime shows. Mm -hmm. And it just struck something in me. I thought, wait a minute, why, why is it women? Why is everybody I know that is into true crime a female. Is this legit? And why are we into this stuff? Some of these stories, these podcasts, these movies, these books, they're bloody, they're graphic, people are dying, they're being tortured. Why in the world do people want to read this stuff before they go to bed at night or nowadays listen to it on the way to work and back and then watch it on HBO when they get home at night? Right. What is going on? So to the point where in 2010, you actually wrote a paper exploring this connection in particular between women and our fascination with true crime. Remind me what the name of your paper was. Captured by True Crime, Why Are Women Drawn to Tales of Rape, Murder, and Serial Killers? And, and, I, and you are staggeringly ahead of your time, by the way. This is 2010. So you were aware of this trend even then. You know, and it's been so fascinating to see it just take off. I mean, back then, nobody knew anything about it. Nowadays, who doesn't have a favorite case, right? Or a favorite yeah. documentary or a favorite yeah. crime podcast. It has just exploded more than I could have ever imagined. And every time, you know, a new documentary, a new series or something comes out, someone always asks me, is this true whole true crime thing going to end soon? I have been asked that many times. And the thing is, I've been asked that over the past three or four years, and they're still asking because it still hasn't ended. And it seems yeah. to have no sign of slowing down. It's all different ages. It's in the academic world. It's in the media world. It just, you think eventually people would run out of stories to tell or people would lose interest, but it is definitely not the case. So we look at The Staircase. It's a originally a documentary series made in 2004. Now we have a, an episodic docudrama that's telling the story again. If you know anything about any of this in the story, you kind of know what happens. So why do I want to keep watching something that I already know the ending to over and over and over again? Well, I think this case is certainly... Um exceptional, right? I mean, I can remember watching that original documentary back when I was in graduate school, and I was just riveted. I mean, I was up half the night, um, you know, working my way through the episodes, and every twist and turn, you just can't believe it. I knew nothing going in. I hadn't Googled the case. I I was just, you know, totally stunned. And so I think that this, this story, this case, has so many 
unique elements to it. It, it sort of hits at something for everyone, right? So you have the uh, the unsolved mystery part that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You have the debates about the forensics, the blood spatter, the head wounds, people who are into the science component. You have the relationships, the husband potentially killing the wife, the children. This story has everything. And I think on the one hand, you have the documentary seeing it play out, but then more of the docudrama, you get to see and imagine what may have gone on behind the scenes. And I think that fills a hole that people have just from watching the documentary or reading a book about the case. It just brings it even more to life, what may or may not have happened. Because there's never one definitive truth, right? There are many facets to a story that there's never just one version of the story. And in this case, even the science doesn't give us the answer because you have competing experts over how she died. I got to say, some of the findings in your paper really surprised me. (laughs) I think understanding the research behind why women like true crime, I think will help a lot of women like me feel, I don't know, a little less guilty. What do you think? Right. And so what I found through my experimental scientific research is that I I was able to isolate parts of true crime stories and manipulate elements to determine what people were more drawn to than others. And what I found is that people, both men and women, but women especially, were drawn to true crime content that had something to do with the psychological content of the killer. What was in his background? What made him kill? What are the red flags? What set him off? And also how someone may uh, have escaped or survived a crime. And when I sat back and looked at it all, I realized, oh, this is all related to survival. And we know from statistics that women fear being the victim of a crime much more than men do. Uh, we can see that in our daily lives. Who's scared to walk across campus at night? You know, it's it's usually not the men, it's it's the women. We have this fear. And I think what's going on is that fear, whether conscious or not, is drawing us towards true crime content where we can learn something, where we can learn a way to prevent this from happening to us. And what's interesting is that when you're looking at how is a woman most likely to die in terms of violence? Who's most likely to kill her? It is a romantic partner, which may be another reason the staircase has struck a nerve with so many people. Because if we are turning to this content to learn you know, what signs to watch for and things like that, we really should be watching for them in our, in our male partners. I don't know if this is de- generations of lifetime movies or whatnot, but this idea that you never, a woman never really knows who her partner is. And at any moment, if you didn't look for those flags, there were all these warning signs and you missed them. And there we are. You're dead. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying about, oh, you know, I think that's what's going on in this staircase. What were the signs that Kathleen or others around him should have picked up on? And I think what your paper was trying to prove is that by looking at these stories, women get this sense of self-preservation. In your research, you chose specifically certain kinds of stories where women find a way out, the one that gets away from Ted Bundy, the one that uh, manages to pick the handcuffs with the watch thing that she saw on TV. (laughs) It's by looking at these and watching these and studying these, I can understand how this won't actually happen to me. Exactly, exactly. It's about preventing either being in a situation or a relationship or whatever it may be where danger 
could occur. For example, sending someone to record a podcast in some strange man's basement with the door locked. It looks like a kill studio in here. There's black walls. Um, These are situations that the, those black gloves behind you, I'm sure, are purely functional. The axe coming down behind me. My guess is that for a lot of people, if you ask them why they were into true crime, they would have a lot of different reasons. And most of them probably wouldn't say, oh, I like learning how the killer got into the house or something like that. I think it's operating at a subconscious level that we aren't even consciously aware of how extreme our fear is or aware of the information that we're picking out from these stories. Because think of how many times someone listens to a crime podcast or has watched a show and then you're like, oh, I better make sure my doors are locked tonight or I better not be driving home by myself in the middle of the night without, without my phone ready to call someone or something like that. People have said they've changed their behaviors, you know, from this true crime content. And I think they just aren't even aware that that may be so appealing to them. And it may also be the case that that's what sort of drives people to the true crime. And then they realize that there's more to it. The mystery component, the social justice component, the emotions, the science, all of those other things as well. Okay, there's the, um, oh, me, the victim, what am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to figure out how to get away. Then there's the, like, I need to understand the criminal justice system. Now I want to get to the third part of it, which may be in your work as well, which is, how would I get away with killing somebody? How how long have you spent thinking about this? <laughs> <laughs> My husband's alive and well in Los Angeles, so let's just say, keep that for now. But um, I, I will say this. Is there something to this idea that inside each one of us is someone who's capable of unspeakable cruelty? I mean, that's scary to think about. I think that anyone, if given a certain situation, like self-defense or something, is probably capable of it. I don't know how many people are sitting around thinking, (laughs) hmm, if I had to take out my husband, how would I do it? It's so dark. It's so dark. Which gets us to the next step of true crime fascination, um, particularly with women. You know, there are those who follow true crime. And then, as we will see in this series, there are women who fall head over heels in love with the murderer or the one who's convicted of murderer. As a psychologist, can you talk a bit about that? Because even all these years later that I've been studying this stuff, I still don't get why you would fall in love with Ted Bundy or even Michael Peterson. Well, you know, it's funny. You didn't know this, but I actually wrote my dissertation on that topic of women in love with serial killers. And so I've interviewed a bunch of women. I've conducted some scientific studies. And I guess, unfortunately, the answer is complicated. And I think one key distinction is There's a difference, I believe, between women who seek out the famous killers like the Ted Bundys or the Charles Mansons of the world that we know are guilty, that we know aren't getting out of prison, that have done horrific things versus someone who would write to, say, Michael Peterson in prison or something like that, who are reaching out as a show of of support, of an interest in the case. And then it evolves into this romantic relationship. And I think that happens more commonly than someone seeking out a famous killer or seeking someone out specifically from a romantic standpoint. So is there anything that's extra about the psychology of this next step in true crime interest that a certain type of mind wants to make this connection with this man behind bars? 
Well, there's a lot of theories out there, and I'm still really looking at all of it. There, there are theories that a woman who comes from a abusive background is attracted to a prisoner because it's safe because he's behind bars and he can't hurt her, or mm. someone who grew up with a troubled childhood or has low self-esteem or something like that. And and what I found through some of my scientific research is some of that may be true for the women who are seeking out the famous killers, but the kind of more everyday women that I have talked to you'd be shocked. They are perfectly normal women who truly stumbled into this, I think, out of the goodness of their heart. And that gets us to this, you know, the consequences of fame, it, particularly in the true crime genre, where we are sort of platforming these guys and giving them like a, a place to spend a lot of time to find whether or not they're guilty or innocent. You know, Michael Peterson has a lot of character flaws, whether he's a killer or not. Um, is there something problematic in us sort of elevating and seeing what we want to see in making a potential murderer be sympathetic? I mean, that's a really good point, because even if someone is innocent or wrongly convicted, they still may have, as you said, pretty severe character flaws or a questionable past or something like that. But the focus becomes they're innocent and we have to get them out and save them and they're and they're amazing and things like that. And so I can understand certainly why victims and victims' families would have maybe a difficult time with some of this attention being given to the potential killer. And mm -hmm. we know that oftentimes victims are overlooked in true crime because the focus is on the killer and and how we caught them and what's going to happen with them and what's going on now and and things like that. But I also think about this idea of it's important for people to understand that the justice system does have flaw does have flaws mm -hmm. and how and how it works in that. And so I think cases like Michael Peterson's and others where potentially justice, you know, was was incorrect. I think it's important for people to understand that that can happen, that it does happen, and how it happens. Something that I've thought a lot about, and I think that you can illuminate in this um, podcast, is this idea of true crime and its potential impact on one's mental health. Is is true crime really affecting one's mental health, or are people just concerned about all these women and our sensitive lady bits not being able to handle <laughs> all the sex crime and violence that happens on TV? You know, that's a really interesting gender double standard. And I had not really thought about it the way that, that you put it. But there is a big focus these days on what is this true crime doing to mental health. And you're right. If it were men that were making up the listeners and the viewers, would we still have this focus? And in terms of what it is doing to people, we don't know yet. Science doesn't know. I'm in the middle of the study right now looking at things like anxiety levels and fear and stuff after listening to, to true crime podcasts. But to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't really anything that, that's been done and certainly no, you know, fMRI studies looking at what's going on in the brain when someone's listening to a true crime podcast. The phenomenon is new enough that it hasn't been looked at in that way. I'm My, my guess is that we're going to find that at, at least some women are experiencing more anxiety from all of this true crime. How, how could it not increase your fear if you're watching and listening to this all the time? Amanda, is there anything to this idea that when you surround yourself with all this violence, it may desensitize us in some way? You know, like they used to say with kids and video games, 
You know, we just discussed that in one of my classes. We read an article on video game violence and and the desensitization to that. And and there's no doubt that people do become desensitized to violence over time. Um, we see that with in in brain studies with with video game research and and other types of studies. And so it makes sense to me that if someone is listening, you know, every other day to a woman being murdered or something like that, it's not going to be as shocking or as revolting, you know, the 20 or 21st time around. Can we still feel, you know, empathy and sympathy and things like that? Can it still affect us? Yes. But I think it's fair to say that we may become numb to some of that over time. Dr. Amanda Vickery, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's a sincere pleasure to have you. And I learned so much, and I know the audience will, too. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Also, I would like you to text me when you get home just to make sure that nothing happened inside that little podcast space. I will. All right. Thank you so much. In episode one, we spoke with Tony Collette about what it was like to play Kathleen Peterson, the woman at the center of a tragedy who, for obvious reasons, we never actually got a chance to know. Here, Juliette Binoche plays yet another woman audiences did not get to know in the documentary. But that's because Sophie was behind the scenes. She edited the documentary series alongside director Jean-Xavier de Lestrade. And in the course of editing the series, she fell in love with Michael Peterson, for real. This part of the Staircase Saga is a stranger than fiction moment that is featured in this episode. And to talk about playing the role I'm here with actress Juliette Binoche, who you may know from her work on the Oscar-nominated classic Chocolat, among many other films. Juliette Binoche, it is so wonderful to have you on the companion podcast to The Staircase. I'm Nancy Miller, the host of the series, and it has been a shocking discovery that those of us who have watched all these episodes, we've watched uh, from 2004, 2011, 2017. And in this episode, we are midway through the series and it's this point of discovery. Sophie is real and she's the editor of the documentary. And just to, just to double fact check with you, Juliette Binoche, she is real. Is she? <laughs> oh, she is real. And she lives nearby my house here. So it's been uh, also very interesting to actually walk like 10 minutes away from my house to her house where I met her the first time because I wanted to uh, meet with her as soon as I could when I knew I was going to do the show. And she was very warm and welcoming. And we spent like two and a half hours together the first time in her garden. Mm. And then very quickly, she talked to me about, quite intimately about her relationship and why, how she was involved into the story and the documentary and do, doing the editing and, and her relationship with Jean-Xavier, who's the, mm-hmm. the director of the documentary. So it's been... Um, it's been really a beautiful kind of discovery because she, I can say that she became a friend because of that film. Juliet, that's amazing. All right, I heard a rumor, I think from Antonio, the showrunner of this series, that you actually sat down with her to learn some editing, and she's even done some editing work for you. The first thing 
that happened is that I asked her, would you be open to do the editing with me so I know you and we can work together and I can ask you questions, you know, while we're editing the film together. And we spent like 10 days together, but it was just wonderful experience because first of all I was seeing her at work and well when we had pauses we could talk about her private life her relationship mm -hmm. and what happened mm -hmm. and so I had all the questions of course we continued talking to each other while I was shooting because I had a lot of other questions because scripts were coming as we were shooting as well right so you received the scripts for this particular series you're receiving things and you're discovering things about her story that you maybe hadn't known yet. Yes, I knew a little bit about the scripts, but not as much as I did, of course, after when I was shooting um, the show. But um, uh, also Antonio had told me, the director had told me quite a lot about Sophie because he knew her. Mm -hmm. But then the, it came a moment when I knew a little more than he did. <laughs> <laughs> so he would That's ask. That's not possible. You know, was, is that really? It's not possible, Juliet. It's, Antonio, it's on a certain level, he knows a lot. <laughs> and I would say that he was the one really to tell the story because he knows it and he's known this story for many, many years. But there was a moment of intimacy with Sophie that mm. he could not reach. And that's normal. It's two women together. It's me playing her. It's uh, specific questions that I dare asking that maybe he wouldn't have dared asking. Uh, and, and I I didn't share everything with Antonio because there was, you know, first of all, there's an intimacy you don't want to share with everyone. Sure. But there was um, uh, there was trust also with uh, with Sophie and I didn't I didn't want to break that trust. It's as simple as that. Do you remember the release of the staircase and what did it did it echo or resonate with you as a sensation upon its release almost 20 years ago? Well, I didn't watch the documentary when it came out. Mm. So, but I did, of course, watch the, the the documentary several times before shooting the show. And my first impression is that you know I was on the side of Michael, totally, you know, thinking his, you know, they're so brutal to have condemned him, and yeah. I was very angry with the conviction and really on his side. And of course, second time I, I, I watched the documentary again, I was, I had different feelings because he was lying and, and you know, he's a, he's a, he's a liar. It's so beautiful to discover how the, in the editing of the documentary, how you discover this person and, and that he's able after a while to dis to show shadows in him and we all have shadows so i think shadows are important uh, and and they're very difficult to reveal especially when you have to you on a trial or you're in front of the family yet you try to put you know to keep together but of course i that's you know uh the questions i asked sophie what her yeah. feeling was about all this and and she's She's always been feeling that he was innocent, deeply innocent. I'm curious if you spoke with Sophie about this line that she appears to have crossed. She's seasoned. She's worked on many things. She's a, a celebrated editor. She somehow, though, goes from advocacy 
which, okay, that makes sense in a documentary, to intimacy. How did that happen? Well, from what I understand that, first of all, she was really, you know, involved in the documentary and really not thinking of any relationship, you know, with uh, with Michael Peterson. It's just that she felt for him and, and tried to give as much, as she says, you know, um, as much as she could on each person's point of view. So what happened is that she was working, and when he got convicted, she really felt for him as a, as a human being. And as soon as he got convicted, she got so upset for him and the family that she sent letters almost every week and she sent books because he was reading all the time. He's a writer and she's always been a reader. She's a real intellectual, but in the best sense. So there was a link between them as intellectuals uh, that they, they shared that love for reading, that love for writing and all that. And for a year, uh, she, they had those like, amazing exchanges. And Michael was somebody who was uh, somehow alive and full of ideas and wanted to come out of prison and wanted to make a life and wanted to make a living outside of this nightmare, even though he knew he was condemned for the rest of his life. Yes, right. But the, the strength of their relationship is that Sophie always believed that he something was going to happen. And somehow, because she never let it go. We have spoken with members of this amazing cast, and we'll be speaking with several more to learn the lengths they went to to research the real-life characters they're playing. But you seem to have taken things to the next level, investing in this relationship with Sophie. How did that inform your performance? Um, well... First of all, Sophie is alive, and, and I wanted to give, um, not to betray her, you know, and that's a consciousness uh, that you have to have, I think, when you have somebody still living, and and you as an interpreter, you, even though I know it's not real life, the show is really an interpretation, an interpretation of their lives, you know, from an Antonio's and the other writers and also the producer's point of view. So there's a certain line where I cannot, you know, change the entire script and all that. But I want to be fair inside, you know, I want to be fair in the feelings, in the in the in the intention I'm putting behind those words. So I never shared any scenes with Sophie, but I did ask, uh, is it true? Uh, that this happened? Is it true that that happened? Yeah. Are you agreeing with this or that? Because I, I wanted to have this kind of link with her so I didn't betray her. At the same time in the script, you've got to make some jumps. And sometimes you have to create situations that are stronger than reality. So people, first of all, it makes people more interested in <laughs> into the show, but also it it propels a sort of a, an action into it that is it's part of you know making movies so as soon as i understood that sophie was okay she knew it was going to be a fiction it was not reality i felt better in this particular episode michael peterson's in prison he's told he has a visitor he doesn't know who it is and in walks his 
pen pal, his you know greatest advocate at this moment in time. Does she remember first meeting him, and did she describe a scene that's similar to what we see in the film in the series? Yes, very much so. I cannot reveal everything because that wouldn't. I don't know how far you know it would be fair for me to uh, to reveal what Sophie was you know kindly what was sharing with me uh, while preparing this this role. But after a year um, of this back and forth, book sent and letters sent, and first time going there, she knew when she came back to Paris that. It was going to be serious, and so then she 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 said that to her husband, and she left. Well, Julia, I'm I'm probably going to say something that you're not going to like, but I was when I watched this happen, and I watched this reveal, and I find out that the documentary editor develops this relationship with Michael. I was like, "What? This changes everything. This what? I can't. I can't. I will never look at this the same way." I was like kind of furious because I felt deceived. Jean-Xavier had never said that he was uh, innocent or he was um, guilty. He doesn't know. And he cannot put it on the, you know, he cannot say. Um, Sophie is different, but Sophie lived with Michael, knows Michael in a different way. It doesn't mean that she sees him as a saint, not at all, but mm. she she has her own feelings that she is faithful with. And uh, you know, when you watch the film several times, you see different things. I mean, I'm talking about the documentary, the 13 hours yeah. documentary. You see different things and you have different feelings. So I don't think that the the documentary is directing you in a way to think or feel. And I have to tell you that when we met at Antonio's place, because he was gathering us, you know, as family, even though uh, coming from different, you know, different worlds, playing different parts. And I love the fact that each actor was defending their character, whether they were thinking this or thinking that. There was always that need to be human. Do you have feelings about Michael Peterson in the way, I mean, even just in your sort of own personal abstract way of any feelings about him and what happens? I feel for him because in a way I feel that he's a prisoner of his own mind. And probably it's a fear of having to deal with things that are so painful and probably in a not only in a childhood but uh there must be some kind of places where he doesn't want to go because it's too much to deal with and uh but that can happen to any of us I mean can you imagine being in that situation imagine that I I spoke with Colin uh about that but I said to him imagine you're innocent and you're going through that nightmare with your family. It's it's an it's like Greek myth. Yes, it's unbearable. And I thought, well, if if he's uh, he's guilty, we don't know. 
imagine yourself in that situation. Imagine you've got to put you yourself in those shoes, you know, and it's true that when I hear the voice of him screaming on the phone, certain people say he's lying just listening to that. I, I, I don't. I think he's totally truthful. I recognize bad acting. I recognize good acting. And for me, that was real. That was truthful. This story brings so many layers of disappointment, anger, frustration, but also hope. And that's where the justice has to really open up into a question mark. What, what do we need in that justice situation? Truth or to be right or wrong? I mean, that's fundamentally getting at the, the heart of our, our, our criminal justice system here, the desire to win over the desire to find truth or justice. Julia Benosha, I want to thank you so much for your time and your thoughtful responses. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Craig Shilowich, Sophia Zuber-Casso, Amanda Vickery, and Juliet Benoche for joining us. Next week, I'll sit down with Larry Pollard, who is convinced Kathleen Peterson was killed by, well, I won't spoil it for you, but I will leave you with one clue, trident marks. I'll also be speaking once again with series researcher Michael Matthews and with Sophie Turner and Odessa Young, who play Michael's adopted daughters, Margaret and Martha Ratliff. That episode will be released the same day as the next episode of The Staircase on Thursday, May 26th. I'm Nancy Miller. The Staircase podcast is produced by HBO Max in conjunction with Campfire Studios in association with High Five Content. The Campfire team includes executive producers Ryan Alexander Steiner, Rebecca Evans, and Ross Dinnerstein. High Five Content's executive producer is Andrew Jacobs. Our senior producer is Brandon Phibbs. Our coordinator is Mary Ald. Editing and mixing by Robbie Carver. Music from the series The Staircase by Danny Bensi and Sonder Urians. Legal by Diana Palacios. Special thanks to Moses Martinez at Loud and Strong Studio and David Ursua at Studio Awesome. And a very special thanks to you, our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. So if you like the podcast and you have a moment, please review and rate this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. It really helps people find the show. You can also stream this podcast on HBO Max. See you next episode. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, Answer a few questions and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.